0: Hello and welcome to Symposium 57. Today, I'm very glad to be joined by and We're going to talk about one of the most prominent figures of English intellectual history. We're going to talk about Thomas More. Some people call him uh, St. Thomas More. We'll discuss this uh, question in a bit. And we're going to talk mainly about his book, Utopia, which is a book that is really open to interpretation and has puzzled interpreters throughout the ages. And the main question is, was he a proto-communist or not? Because he does seem to have some criticisms of private property in the book. But Mm. we'll see and we'll find out. I'm sure that we'll get a lot of people saying that we misread it. (laughs) But this is one of the issues with texts that are highly controversial. So please bear with us. And if you think we're incredibly mistaken, give us a comment and tell us why. So I think the... The dialogue is really important. So Thomas More was born in 1478 and he died in 1535. I think he lost his head. Yeah?
1: Yeah. Yeah. He was yeah. executed by Henry.
0: Yes. And his most significant book is considered to be Utopia. And he's also a very prominent figure of the Northern Renaissance Movement. I think he he col- he talked to... He was... Discussing with Erasmus, Mm -hmm. and uh, he he was known. And
1: uh, Thomas More was very famous in his own lifetime. Yes, Um, I've heard different historians say that arguably Erasmus was one of the most famous men in Europe, or one of the most famous thinkers certainly. And Thomas More was sort of up there with him. And yeah, they had a fairly famous correspondence. Erasmus is sort of thought of as one of the earliest, uh, one of the early humanists. Yes, Um, Thomas More um yeah it was extremely famous in his own lifetime absolutely yeah
0: yeah one question that arises is whether he was a, a, um a humanist or not and uh, i've uh, heard uh, i've read a really interesting interpretation of uh, thomas more by quentin skinner who's one of the biggest historian of ideas who's alive and he says that Thomas More is better understood as a humanist who criticizes humanists. Hmm. So he he takes an extra step uh, than Erasmus. So he would say something like the following. Erasmus is someone who is theoretically a humanist, but when it comes to practical implementations of humanist ideas, he falls a bit short. He was a bit more uh, interested in maintaining, let's say, the the benefits of the aristocracy of his time. Mm. Whereas Skinner reads more as someone who in Utopia presents a criticism of the aristocracy of the time. And he says that true nobility is virtue and virtue alone. It's not uh, being wealthy or having inherited wealth or titles. So he says that Thomas More is someone who is a humanist. He's not just a scholastic or someone who believes in the, in the life of contemplation, where you just uh, lock yourself in a monastery and you contemplate the divine. He was someone who was very actively involved into politics, and he thought that philosophy and ideas are also a means to improve the common good and promote the public mm. good.
1: We get that in Utopia a lot, yeah. don't we? A number of times it comes up the best thing you can do is sort of increase happiness for the world. If that means getting involved in the dirty game of politics, then so be it. Yeah, the label of humanist, I think it's, you know, it's quite an umbrella term. Yes. And sort of, you know, 16th century humanists are not really exactly the same thing as sort of 19th century humanists, are they? No. Um, uh, And uh, people can argue about to what extent Thomas More was or wasn't a humanist. Um, it's one of those things you could just, you can make an argument on both sides. You know, we know that when we, when, when we look back on the life and career of St. Thomas More, um, he was very close to Catholicism. Um, you know, so he wasn't, well, we'll, we'll get into it exactly yeah. the extent of that. But that's all part of his story. Certainly the story of his downfall and execution is to what extent if at all, had he abandoned Rome. Um, yes. So a staunch sort of orthodox Catholic, or a staunch Catholic, um, it wouldn't necessarily be a humanist. It would be a more difficult argument to make to call them a humanist. Um, It's the age of Tyndall. It's the age of the Reformation. It's the age of the wars of religion, nearly, very nearly, running up to it. It's the age of Martin Luther and... Um so for the story for England and Thomas More, it's the story of Henry Tudor, Henry the Seventh, and Henry the Eighth. Yes. Um for anyone who doesn't know, spoiler alerts, but it's important to everything. Yeah. Henry <clears> the <throat> Eighth pardon me. Henry the Eighth eventually has Thomas More beheaded for treason. So, you know, when you know how someone dies, um, you know, it, it, it puts in into a different shade or different color, everything else they did during their life, right? Um, So... No,
0: I think you're right. One thing to note though, I don't know to what extent we can use Moore's reaction to the Reformation and Luther as uh, guides for interpreting Utopia, because I think Utopia was published in 1516. And if I'm not mistaken, Martin Luther sort of initiated the Reformation with a 95 Thesis in 1517, a year later. So it seems to me that uh, there are there is a strong case to be made that the Reformation and how he reacted is not of primary importance in interpreting the, the utopia. Of course it is important because... His character informed his actions and his actions uh, had the impact that they did when it came to the... And they formed his stance in the debate regarding the Reformation. But it seems to me that there were more things in his mind. He had this substantial intellectual life before that. Mm. And it seems to me that all of that is, into the, into, see, is seen into the utopia as a dialogue. And also, he wasn't someone who was just a monk who was in a monastery or something. He was really actively involved in,
1: in, uh, in politics, wasn't he? Yeah, well, I mean, he was a lawyer, first and yeah. foremost. So yeah, he's involved in the game of, uh, of uh, men trying to best and outdo each other legally yeah. and politically, uh, deep, deep into all of that. Yeah. I think i would quickly say, stating the obvious, but because the Reformation didn't start on the day that Martin Luther yes. nailed his demands to the door at Worms. You know, it's, uh, got, the, the tradition goes back longer than, than that. Um, so some people in history are more complex than others. Yeah. Um, I've said this a few times on various epochs and all over the place. Some people are quite straightforward. What you see is what you get. And other people have uh, much more difficult to grasp much more complex, sort of emotional or intellectual life. Thomas More is one of those where he's, he's, it's difficult to always get a handle on exactly where he's coming from, what he means with things. Um, so, you mentioned already at the beginning that maybe it's possible that some of Utopia is satire or some of it is sarcastic, and uh, whether he doesn't necessarily mean everything he's saying. Um, and and also over time, change your mind on things, as well. You know, I've used as an example before Stalin, that Stalin, in a way, in, a, in like a, a historical biography type sense, is quite straightforward. Yeah. Um, he said relatively straightforward things and kind of always meant them. Uh, <laughs> yes. Right. Yes. Uh, but then you've got someone like Thomas More, who's you know much more slippery, much more difficult to get a handle on isn't always clear. Um, I think to some
0: extent, this reflects the position of uh, Thomas More in his society because you could lose your head easily if you were associated with things that, uh, with let's say the wrong ideas. Mm. Of course, that also applied in Soviet Russia, but Stalin was one of the reasons why (laughs) it applied. Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons, main causes of the Red Terror. Yeah. Not only that that's obviously more complex, but he he was a big part of it. So Thomas More is someone who was a councillor.
1: Wasn't he a councillor to Henry VIII? Yeah, he eventually became the Lord Chancellor. Yes. Um, which is some often historians talk about the Lord Chancellor as being a type of Prime Minister. Yeah. But Um, I mean, you get the idea. It gives you an impression, but it's not quite right, of course, because a Prime Minister does have sort of executive powers, but a a, a Chancellor or a Lord Chancellor um, received all their privileges directly from the Crown still. So the King could make or fire or hire anyone he wanted completely at his whim um, to be his Lord Chancellor. And eventually Thomas More... Got that position for all sorts of different reasons. So eventually became one of the most powerful, formerly powerful people in the kingdom. And this shows a bit in the setting of the Utopia,
0: because Utopia starts, it has a very interesting structure. It has two books. And book one starts with a diplomatic meeting in Flanders, where Thomas More represents Henry VIII. And he has a diplomatic meeting with uh, the Spanish who represent Charles I of Castile, who later became Charles V of the Holy Roman Empire. And they were discussing you know, the several treaties and clauses and stuff. And they had some disagreements and they had a sort of break. And Thomas, during that break, Thomas More went to Antwerp and he met Peter Giles and Raphael Hithloday. Now, Raphael Hithloday is the main character of the book. Because he is someone who is, whose name is supposed to be a dispenser of nonsense. Mm. And he talks a lot in book one. And the entire book two is essentially Hitler Day talking about utopia mm. and the customs of utopia.
1: Mm.
0: And Thomas More is a character in the dialogue. But... It's not exactly clear what, who represents Thomas More's p- opinions. So th- there are several interesting things uh, here. So on the one hand, Hithloday's name is supposed to mean dispenser of nonsense. So you would expect that someone with a name fool would say foolish things. But there's also another interesting that Thomas More. He, I think he he mentioned also that. His name in some other languages means a fool. It comes from the from um, also the Greek word in, uh, about a fool, moros. And I think he stresses it. So it's not exactly whether he's trying to... On the one hand, it seems like he tries to create a distance with Raphael Hitler Day by having him as a separate character mm. in the dialogue and with a dialogue <coughs> ending with more saying that well, he said a lot of things. I don't agree with all of them, but he had some good ideas. So, it's a really interesting do- a literary device.
1: Yeah, um, for anyone who hasn't read or listened to the audiobook book of Utopia, yeah, in a nutshell, what it is is that Thomas More meets an extremely interesting man. Is yes. basically what it is. Yes. Um he meets this. Uh, is he supposed to be Spanish or Castilian? Who's gone over to New Castile? They talk about, don't they? He's he says the that channel. he was Portuguese. Portuguese, okay. And he so,
0: travelled in the last of three of the four travels of America of Vasco Right. And at so, the end, he didn't come back. Mm. And he stayed where they were at that point.
1: <clears throat> and Somewhere then, in the New World.
0: In the New World, and then from there, he travelled the whole world. And at some point, he was in Ceylon and uh, he found uh, some Spanish ships and he came back.
1: Hmm. So the story is, the the conceit, the narrative of Utopia, is that Thomas More essentially bumps into, or is introduced to this sort of old, raggedy, old looking man who looks like he might be some sort of seaman pirate type guy.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, Thomas More doesn't think much of him at first glance, but he's told, He's been all around the world. He's an extremely interesting man with endless interesting stories. And we all know you, Thomas More, love an interesting conversation. Yeah. You guys should, should hook me. up. And the rest of the story, the rest of Utopia, is sort of picking his brain a bit about things yes. he's seen. And the main thing yeah. that Thomas More is interested in that this guy has seen is this, well, fictional place um, on the other side of the world called Utopia. Yes. Um, and uh, the the vast majority of the book of Utopia is this old this old sea dog describing this perfect society he's found yes. or near perfect society he's found, and a few times Thomas More himself or one of the other characters sort of push back and say, "Wait, that how could that be? That doesn't make sense. That doesn't that can't be right." Da, 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 da. Yes. And the 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 old sea dog, interesting man, uh, explains how. Oh no, actually it works like this, and. Uh, I suppose one of the things is it does sound, at first blush, quite communistic. Of course, I, I, we'll get into that in detail in a bit later, um, don't want to jump ahead of ourselves, but I would like to stress um, you know, that it's not communist in the Marxist, in the Marx, Engels, Lenin sense. Yeah. Um, uh, but we can talk all about that in detail uh, when, yes, we, when yeah. we get up to it. I know you've yeah. got a structure for the conversation. No, it's okay. I don't want to run ju- over. Yeah.
0: Okay. So, um, one other thing that functions within the narrative as a way to distance more from Hitler Day to create a sort of artificial distance, mm. is what they say in the very beginning of their dialogue about uh, counselling. And here is, you could say, where Day is completely different from Thomas More in real life. So he is introduced to to Raphael Hithlodae by Peter Giles, and Hithlodae is presented by Giles as a person who has traveled the whole world, and he's intimately um, aware and conscious of the various. His societies, their histories, their customs, institutions, and laws. Now, that in the mind of Thomas More, this makes him an ideal counselor. And he tells him, How come are you not a counselor? You mm-hmm. need you're you're great for being you you would make a great counselor. You you need to promote the public good of your people by becoming a counselor, mm-hmm. which is something that Thomas More was. But uh, Heathcote says that he doesn't, uh, he w- he wouldn't want it. He? he likes having his sort of uh, freedom of mind. He thinks mm-hmm. that he would, this would be completely compromised if he were, uh, were a counselor. And he also says that uh, princes and uh, kings are more interested in warfare. And I don't have any war, uh, military wisdom to offer. And here mm-hmm. we see the different um, a sort of difference between. Political and military wisdom the first having to do with legislations and was legislation institutions and the structure of societies and The other has to do with how to defend your land against your enemies and how to conduct warfare uh, Whether aggressive or or not. Mm -hmm. They said People wouldn't be interested in listening to me. So kings wouldn't be interested in listening to me people who do give counsel to kings are so proud that they wouldn't hear what I have to say. So I'll just
1: chill and be myself. <laughs> yeah. Also, yeah, well, so Thomas More says to him, um, all, the, all your great stories and all your wisdom and insights and uh, ideas about government are so valuable yeah. that you owe it to the world, you owe it to men, yeah. To be advising or be a counsellor, as he says, to be a politician, to be advising a great prince. And um, even if says, it is
0: at the expense of your own interest.
1: Yeah, so that Raphael guy immediately says, No, but I will be a slave then. Yeah. I'll, I'll be a slave though if I take the money of a great prince in order to be his, his counsellor. And, you know, they go back and forth a bit about that. So, no, you wouldn't be a slave. He's like, No, I would be, I would be though. Yeah. Uh, um, So yeah, it's sort of that age-old question: Um, Do you owe it to the to the rest of humanity if you've got something to give, if you've got something to offer, something of value? Do you owe it to everyone else to share that or not? Um, Already, we're starting down the 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 path of um, not communism, just the idea of sort of socialistic thinking, if you like, proto-socialistic. Concepts Um, I I wouldn't say that this is necessarily socialistic. I would say that this seems
0: a bit Republican
1: Well, it's just the idea that like what you want isn't important. Yes What the collective needs is much more important than what you want. Yeah, that idea
0: Yes, but wouldn't you say that this is also a main feature in Republicanism where it's it's the common good that is supposed to be what you should promote but Even more than that, let's take a step further. Wouldn't that be the kind of mentality that would, first of all, be required for the promotion of the common good and society? But also, wouldn't monarchs also try to instill that uh, idea in people? And I I think that this is one of the of the other age-old questions: what what is the proper balance between individual and collective interests? It seems here that. The uh, that um, the kind of compromise that Hitler Day is uh, Heath, Hitler Day sounds way more individualistic than more. Let's let's mm. put it that way. Mm. Yeah. So I don't think that this specifically is what merits himself being classified as a proto-communist no, because no, it no, seems no, to just, me that it's,
1: Yeah. You yeah, No. It's just the very very first inkling in it. Yes. Uh, because you know there's. Collectivism of all different types, isn't it? You could say a republic is is a collectivist project, sure, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. okay, but there's this idea of uh, ha- actually doing away with private property or any property rights, um, and then you are quite, you, you know, you're already down that slippery slope towards communism. Yeah, let's say, and all that is discussed in this. But I would just like to stress, as I already have. Um, I kind of hate it when, well, it's just wrong, really, I think, to give labels of, like, being a liberal or a socialist or a communist or a republican or anything to sort of medieval or ancient peoples. Uh, maybe actually republicans, not, not necessarily. But putting modern political labels on Anachronisms. people. Anachronisms. Yeah, it's an anachronism, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, for example, to call Socrates a liberal or something. <laughs> um, it's just, it's just sort of wrong. So yeah. to call Thomas More a, a communist or a socialist or something like that, or at least some of the views he seems to expouse in Utopia seem communistic in style. Okay, you can say they're 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 communistic in style or socialist in in flavour. Yeah, but the idea of socialism or communism did not exist in the sixteenth century. And then there's people much older than Thomas More. You know, you can go back to, well, ancient times, actually. Um, You know, me and Cole did a thing all about the Spartans, and ancient Spartan society resembles communism in various ways or resembles collectivist societies quite strongly in some ways. You're not going to say Lycurgus was a communist, right? That's wrong to say that. It's wrong. Um, So that's where I am with Thomas More and that whole thing. Uh,
0: Let let me... uh, pick up on this, because I think it's a very interesting question. So anachronisms seem to me to be mistaken ways to just classify people and reject them without properly engaging with their views. Sure, yeah, it could be uh, used that way. And uh, when we talk about terms, terms are not transparent. So for instance, a lot of people say Plato and the Republic was a communist. Well, he wasn't in the modern sense. He, he thought that some things should be owned in common by the guardians. Mm. He wasn't saying that, for instance, there shouldn't be merchants who have private property and stuff like that. So you cannot literally say that you are a communist mm. if you think that something should be commonly owned. That, that's too low resolution. And a lot of the time people forget that the notion of communism that is talked in the modern context is the Marxist sense Mm. and also the utopian socialist sense, you could say. Because there was the debate between the utopian socialist and the scientific socialist, or at least how they call themselves. And um, there is a lot of, a lot of intellectual package there some of it taken from Hegel, that informs the idea of classless society in Marxist, mm. that is just not there in, in Thomas More, or Plato, or Lycurgus, or, you know, before. So when we're talking about, I, I agree with you, anachronisms are really quick ways of misreading people, but mm. they give the, uh, the idea to, to, to a reader that I, I can safely examine something without it um, putting, uh, challenging my views. Because mm. if you say, okay, I, 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 I dislike communism, Marxist communism. Yeah, okay, but Thomas More is a Marxist communist. Therefore, I don't have to take Thomas More seriously because <laughs> he's a communist. Mm-hmm. That's a way of not engaging with Thomas More. <clears throat> mm. And he says some interesting stuff there because I, I think that there's a very big interpretive question that we will get to. I think that should be the main question, whether he is a communist or not. But one interesting thing is that he starts with Hitler Day in book one, the, the, the dialogue starts, with Hitler Day saying that he was in England for four or five months in the end of the 15th century. And uh, he was struck by the sight of 20 people who just stole Uh, stuff about to be hanged and this starts a a conversation about the justice of corporal punishment for thieves and I think that this is an interesting critique and it's the principle of proportionality of punishment to crime Mm -hmm. and that's a very interesting discussion here and uh, some of the things that he says are considered... I think there isn't much interpretive uh, disagreement here that they they do think that Moore is criticizing the landed gentry of his time, the aristocracy of his time. And he has Hithloday attack what was called, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the Enclosure Movement. And he says that essentially the enclosure process was the process of enclosing land and saying, okay, I'll own this land and taking people away from it,
1: Mm. the
0: peasants who would live there and throwing them away. So, and this uh, this begins the criticism of private property of land in this case.
1: Mm.
0: And he would say that this movement is giving land titles to some and prevents the people who always lived there and always hunted there and always um, uh, fed themselves from the land, it violently takes them away and they have to go somewhere else. So, day is essentially saying that if you artificially deprive the means of sustenance to some people, and then they go out, go out and steal, mm-hmm. you have sort of caused it. Number 1 <laughs> yeah. and number 2 you have uh, you are not punishing them fairly because you are you're not going to make people steal less because the reasons why they steal have nothing to do with with um, immorality they have to do with people not able to survive and mm. that's why they do it so it's it's where nature k- kicks in and yeah. people lose the control Of their their actions, they have to feed themselves. And it's important to bear in mind that it's quite a different thing to be talking about things with our belly full Mm. than when it is to have all the, the hunger and the biological underpinning of not enjoying well being kicking in. So he would say that you're artificially killing people without addressing the actual causes. That lead them to to the to to thief Mm. to being thieves. Mm.
1: Yeah, so I mean, a few things are there again. You've said quite a lot there. I want to make all different points, but I suppose just to start with by saying um, that before Marx and Engels, um, there's many, many, many examples of people, groups, um, strains of thought. Um, which the the true communists, the Marx and Engels era, 19th century actual communists, um, obviously looked back at and and, um, borrowed from, from sort of the diggers, the levellers, all the Puritans, Anabaptists, Lollards, the Cathars, people from ancient times, like I say, the Spartans or something. Lots and lots of examples of people that had real issues with, Um, strongly stratified class societies, and um, had also liked the idea of public property or that property was uh, all owned collectively, all that sort of thing. Um, Now, both sides of the aisle, left and right, look back at those and say, you know, like the leftists would say, look, there's been communists since the ancient world or since the medieval world. We've had communism at least since the 12th century or something had socialists since the 13th century or something, then the other side of the will say, no, no, they no, no, a bit like I have argued already. No, 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 they're not. You know, they've got some ideas which socialists and communists also believe, but you wouldn't call them actual communists. So with the idea, the first thing that comes up here is this idea of um, executing thieves, thieves um, which was sort of fairly common, or was just common in the 15th and 16th century England or Europe. Um, and Thomas More argues, I think it's More himself, doesn't he, argues that it's just not proportional that you, you punish a murderer with the same punishment that you punish someone who stole a cup of loaves of bread. That's just not proportional. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.